We're going to uh, begin in Acts chapter 7. I was uh, receiving just a text, literally just off the side of someone who knew I was speaking um, today and sent me an SMS message, uh, one of my Australian friends, uh, wishing me well and that the sermon goes well. What we're going to read is a sermon which ends very differently. This is a story of a man called Stephen who's been brought into the sort of community of the apostles, those who have the message of Jesus. And he's brought before the religious leaders of his day. And he goes on this sort of huge um, story, really, about the people of God who have been following God but disobeying God. And he gives this epic grand narrative which ends at this sort of high point. We're going to dive in after he's given this history of Israel, and we're going to dive in to sort of the climax of this story. So imagine a guy giving a sermon. He's not giving a sermon where people have come in and they may have had brunch and they're feeling relaxed and sitting in seats and just done a meet and greet time. He is talking to a seething group of religious leaders who literally have murderous intent in their eyes. I'm glad I'm not doing that this morning. <laughs> so we're looking at Acts 7, uh, and let's begin at verse 44. Acts 7, verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. This refers to the physical space that God commanded Moses to make in the desert after the people of God had left uh, Egypt, slavery. And he commands them to make this, make, make this meeting place where they will engage with the presence of God in fullness. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Now, sometimes when you, if you're not used to reading the Bible, or perhaps you've read your Bible all your life, there's something to watch out for in the Bible. And that's a very small word, and often it'll sort of just be in the text, and if you just gloss over it, you miss something really important, and that word is, but... Okay, but, verse 47, it was Solomon who built a house for him. Solomon builds this temple, and it's so interesting when you read it, it's a parallel between how Solomon builds his temple and how Moses builds the tabernacle, but then there's this thing where they're like pumping up Solomon, saying how awesome he is, he's the smartest guy, but then there's this sort of counter story going on that, yeah, he's, he's amazing and he's wise, but then just as Moses had taken the people out of Israel, Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter. The people of God in the tabernacle have this thing where God comes and meets them in his complete Shekinah glory presence, but the thing's just a tent. It's fabric out in the desert. It's not impressive. Now, Solomon builds an impressive temple. He gets the best craftsmen of the day who come from other countries. Now, Moses did something similar, but the craftsmen he used were the ones that God said were empowered with the Holy Spirit. So, Solomon does that. Another guy brings him from the nations, builds a temple, and the temple that Solomon builds 
is slightly dwarfed by the palace that Solomon builds for himself. This is a contested temple. It looks right, and it looks impressive, and he brings all this sort of, does this big PR campaign, has like a media launch event, brings all the nations to come and see, but it's contested, it's conflicted. And the Spirit of God rocks up and turns up, is like, I'm going to come in, but you better obey. So sometimes our religion can be a mix of ourselves and our glory and a desire to follow God's glory. That's a definition of cultural Christianity, okay? When we mix our glory with God's glory. Okay, where was I? I was having a drink of water. Okay. So, it goes on, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, and this is where it gets mad, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Now, in San Francisco, where, you know, it's spiritually not religion, of course, I'm spiritual, I'm not really into organized religion. That's a very common thought in 21st century Western cultures. But to say that, and he's not really meaning that, but to say that God doesn't dwell in a house to a group of temple leaders in the first century, this is not going to go well. And he quotes here, as the prophet says, he's quoting from Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What they would imagine with the temple is that God is in the heavens and his feet literally come into the temple and rest on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is his footstool, like he's got a recliner and he's like, his feet are out there. That's almost the, not really, but you get the picture. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You, just like your ancestors, always resist the Holy Spirit. The leaders are enraged. There's some sort of semblance of a court process going on here. Due process goes out the window, and they just grab rocks and smash Stephen's skull in. Stephen points a way forward here, and he points a way forward to a new kind of temple that God is building in the world. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that what we are being built into here today in San Francisco, on a rainy morning, it feels like we're going to church, and yes, we are, but what is church? It's more than just turning up in a place. It's actually God taking living stones. Look at the person next to you, nudge them, just say, whisper, you're a living stone. It's not how we think of ourselves as humans. We're spontaneous, creative, unique creatures. Just say, you're a rock, but you're a living rock. And these living rocks are being built into a new kind of temple. It doesn't look glorious like Solomon's temple. It's not registered in the metrics of this world, which likes to look at things and money and the obvious and the visual, but something is being built. This morning, something's being built. And you're not going to see it if you've got eyes attuned to earthly metrics. And what's being built is a temple. A temple. Now, most of us, some of you might have grown up with temples in your cultural background. I'm not used to the idea of a temple. In my neighborhood, near my house, 
just next to the music store where they sell keyboards and guitars, there is the Southern Hemisphere's biggest Sikh temple. 5,000 people. And they serve curry every week. So if you're a volunteer here this morning, you've got it easy. <laughs> I also have near my house a Thai Buddhist, or as you'd say, Buddhist temple. The translator was off today. I'll be doing both. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that, that's what I think of temples. I think of temples, maybe some ancient ruins in Greece somewhere. But temples are as not as ancient as we think. Temples, if you look at them in the ancient world, really interesting. The temple in Jerusalem, its walls had into the sides carved these trees, these pomegranates. It had a menorah, which is a candle candle-gathering device, um, <laughs> CGD, candle-gathering device, <laughs> but it was shaped like the tree of life. It also had this bowl, the molten sea, this big bowl, steel bowl, which represented the sea. And the commonality between Israel's temples and all of the temples of the nations around them was that the temples were what, in technical terms, they call microcosms. Microcosm means mini-universe. They were mini-models of how life should work. They were diagrams of systems set in stone. So the ziggurats, which the Babylonians had, had these gigantic stairways and people would rock up and they would bring their grain offerings, they would bring cattle and they would bring this stuff along and they would take it up there and they would sacrifice it and you would have high priests and this was the interface between humanity and the gods. And it was weird, it was basically a codependent relationship. Anxious humans who were like, I'm worried that my kid's going to get sick, or I'm worried that the crops are going to fail. So I'm going to take some crops, go up these big steps, up this ramp, and I give it to the high priest, and they'd burn it. When things got really bad, with gods like Moloch, they would sacrifice children, sacrificing their future. And this misguided desire to influence the gods the gods were portrayed as insecure as well. So two things worked marking by that. A temple system that's going wrong is going to create anxiety. Stop and think about that. In a time and place where we're the most comfortable, affluent cultures the world's ever seen, my city and yours, booming house prices, cultural creative hubs, yet racked by anxiety. The second is, Dallas Willard once said that the sign of a religious, go religious system going wrong is when an unfair sacrifice has to be made. Now, if you're particularly, intuit particularly intuitive, you might already be connecting the dots. Temples are not ancient. We live in them. San Francisco is a temple. It's a model of how the world should work. Corporations are temple, malls are temple, sporting stadiums are temple, your cell phones are temple. All of these things offer a model of how the world should operate. And so there's ways of worship, there's offerings that we make. We may not take bags of grain or a cow on our shoulders up the ramp, 
but we're sacrificing time and we're in an anxious, codependent relationship which the gods that we don't name but control our lives. And so in the temple, the sacrifice that actually has to be made in the 21st century temple in which you live, based around achievement, is you become the sacrifice. I'm working. I'm running. Active wear every morning. I just keep running. I know I'm fit, but I'm looking around me, and there's someone in front of me with active wear on, and they're skinnier than me, and I'm just going to keep running because everyone else is. And I've got to actually accrue this sense of offering I make to my temple because I want to be seen as worthy. America's a temple. The globe's a temple now in globalization. As the temples aren't so foreign, they're actually the places in which we live. And in our system, we have these offerings. In temples, they would have these places where they placed the offerings these storehouses of grain. And so in our temple, the storehouses that we look for, I'm just going to talk about three. If you imagine these reserves. The first one is, we want in our temple an overflowing storehouse of meaning. People are hungry for meaning at this time. But if you look across the West, both at an individual level and a cultural level of what is bereft in our societies, we have a hunger for meaning. More and more consumer goodies don't satiate a desire for meaning. Our hearts are restless until they find their home in God, Augustine said. So we see all kinds of political craziness happening as people try and grab onto identities and causes to fill that sense of meaning. The second thing we want is we want a full tank of rich relationality, community, to be known and loved. And so in our temple storehouses, we have this desire to fill that and be known. And we desperately want community, but we also desperately run from it. And then the third storehouse, which we want, is we want freedom. We want freedom to do what we want to do when we want to do it. It's the American way. It's the mantra of the 21st century globalized world of radical individualism. And how it works in our world is what we're trying to do in our dysfunctional temple of 21st century culture is we just keep bringing offerings. We want more freedom, and we think that if we can fill the storehouse of freedom, that's somehow going to flow into meaning and flow into relationship. Now, there's some people in the world who need freedom. People in North Korea, their, their freedom tank is almost empty. They need more freedom. But our freedom tank is actually overflowing. We have so much freedom, we actually don't know what to do with it all. And when you've got too much freedom, and you can just do what you want to do when you want to do it, you actually begin to be anxious. So you've got two competing temples. You've got a Solomon temple that you're living in. You're here on Sunday, so I'm going to assume that you're pursuing God in some ways, but you've got the biblical temple of discipleship and following Jesus, and then we've got this other 21st century consumerist, globalized temple that we're all trying to follow, and it's falling apart in front of us. And it's leaving us hungry and wanting more. 
So this means three things. This means that we're in a world where we have so much freedom, but increasingly we're anxious and we're lonely. You can see this in a city. When a city has too much freedom, multiple things happen. Despite affluence, mental illness rises. There's this weird moment I call the dog apocalypse, where you have more dogs than babies. I don't know if that's happened here yet. And you look at that, like, that's just not a functional way to create a culture going forward. If you've got a birth rate where you're not going to live past one generation, the dogs will rule. <laughs> City council, first dog on there, and then they just lead the revolution. <laughs> it started when people were picking up their, their do-in bags. That's when the first test, it was, does that happen here? They're already controlling us. Okay, so when you're in a dysfunctional, secular, mega-temple, like San Francisco, three things, if you want to move from that to authentic Christian community. The first one is this. This is easily said, really hard to live out. If you want more meaning, if you want more relationality, if you want to do authentic church, you're going to have to reduce your freedom a bit. I'm just going to say that again, because that's a big one. If you want meaning, if you want relationality, if you want to authentically do the Christian community that the New Testament shows us, you're actually going to have to reduce your freedom a little bit. Now, where San Francisco has been a pioneer for many years, going back to its early days, the hippie years, even tech now, this idea that we can have community and freedom and not have to reduce our freedom at all but that's failing before our eyes. So, if you want to push in this morning to what God wants to do, you're going to actually have to reduce your freedom. What that means is got at, I think in this day, by a verse, this is my second point, a verse in 2 Timothy 2.2. But Paul's talking to Timothy. Timothy's a, a young guy, and Paul's instructing him of how to live out this new way, this, this spirit temple in the world. And he says to him, what you've heard me learn in the world, entrust to a certain type of person, so that they can then take that and spread this message through the world. Now, does he say, what does he say? Does he say, Entrust that to people with really high tertiary university education who went to the best colleges. It doesn't say that. Say to the people with the most charisma and social power. No, it actually doesn't say that. He says, entrust this to reliable people. I travel across the Western world speaking in cities like this. And it's so interesting. They're filled with people who are talented and smart and educated and creative. And when you talk to the pastor afterwards, you have dinner or whatever, the thing that's actually undermining the church is weird. It's, it's not like some big, horrible, scary thing. It's actually a lack of reliability. Yeah, I want to be in your leadership stream. I want to be there. I want to get involved in discipleship. I want to help the poor. I want to do this. 12 minutes before that event, that meetup, sneaky test, can't come tonight, my dog's feeling a bit ill. <laughs> That's actually a real excuse, someone told me. 
We, the church now, stand on the platform that has been built by generations of Christians who are reliable. Some of you are here this morning because you had grandmothers or grandfathers or aunts who prayed for you every night on their knees, who didn't have the freedom that you have and the entertainment before you and the options that you could indulge in. These churches that were built on and different things and colleges or seminaries that exist in the world, mission agencies were built on people who did not earn close to what you, some of you earn in this room, but just gave sacrificially. Every one of those donations from a sense of reliability. People who stayed in their church and in their relationships when the goings got tough and they did not feel it. We're standing on a platform that has been built since a big move of God that happened in the 19th century. But we're approaching the point in time where soon some older generations who the church has relied on their investment in time and reliability, that's going. So we need some people to step up we need some people to be reliable, who actually go, I'm going to be part of that community group, and I'm going to turn up, rain, hail, or shine, headache or no headache. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to give my life to this. And that leads to my third point. We are being built into a new kind of temple. This temple is built not by the bricks of this world. In Mark 13, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and his disciples are with him. His disciples are like country boys. They haven't seen the big city. And they turn up to Jerusalem and one of them says to Jesus, doesn't say who, because they're a bit embarrassed by this comment. Maybe, you know, who knows, I won't guess. But they stand and go, look at these huge stones. Look at this temple. It's incredible. They're bedazzled by the things of this world. And Jesus goes, effectively, it's all going to fall. He's building a new temple. And for him to build the temple that he wants at this time, it means, third point, some of us are going to have to abandon the building project of building monuments to our own glory. And we can do that in ways we're not even realizing. For the mantra of the 21st century is you build your own brand, you build yourself, you create yourself, erect your own identity. So what does this mean? This is, I think, the third or fourth time I've spoken here at Reality. I spoke earlier on when, I think it's nine years you guys have been going now, close to. First time I came and spoke, it was in this ascendant moment. This moment when people had said about churches in San Francisco, and I came here before Reality and, and did ministry, and this was called the church graveyard. Any planter that wanted to come here is like, good luck, mate, it's just not going to work. You'll be lucky to get, you know, a handful of people. This is tough, tough soil. Reality begins. Reality has God's favor on it. God's hand of favor. And it bucks the trend. It goes in a different direction. And it begins to grow. And something different begins to happen. And all of a sudden, God is doing something. And then we get to this point where in San Francisco, you've got this different kind of church where you have this worship which connects with, with what God is doing inside of you. But then you have sermons which are engaging. You have groups which are transformational to be part of and community. 
and things move. But then it hits this point. And two things happen, really. One is, what I've noticed when churches in cities like, like this, there's this point where those churches, if you, if you do those things, provide good worship, provide intelligent, engaging biblical sermons, provide people community, you're going to get people. And really, I've noticed you get two types of people. Three, really. First is people who have been cultural Christians, always gone to church, moved to San Francisco, freak out because it's not like the Midwest, and like your grandma's like, hey, you've got to go to church. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm actually going now because now I'm scared. I'm in San Francisco. And like, okay, I'm there every week. So you've got the people coming because that's what you do. You've got the other people who come and in a sense they're living out of the worship rhythms of the secular temple. I'll come. But it's on my terms. I'm not reducing my freedom. So turning up regularly is turning up every six weeks. And I like what you said there, Dave, and I like that bit about reality, but I'm also just going to DIY this and add this bit here, not have that bit of the gospel, just create my own little pastiche of belief. And to be honest, when I came last time, I came 18 months ago, I was on a trip, I'd spoken in a number of places, and I came in, and I had a few people with me. And I was like, this is the end of my trip, last talk, made my way back to the West Coast, into the Pacific, back home. And I turned up, came into pre-service prayer, and there was an absolute battle going on for this church. I'm just standing in pre-service prayer, my head's spinning. I look across from people at my team, and they're sort of standing there going, and we're all looking at each other in Australian eye sign language. <laughs> Which is, what, what the heck have we walked into? Now, it wasn't obvious. And there was a season after that ascendant moment where the enemy had an assignment to take this church out. Because the powers and principalities can't tolerate what's happening here. And so that day, I remember I preached, I was just like, I can't even remember what I said. And I think it was like, I'm preaching to people here. But actually, I was preaching to the principalities and powers in this city. And it was like, take up a sword and fight for this thing. Why? Because God wants this to flourish in this city. So I believe we're now at a point, and all this, what I've been talking about today, is because he actually wants to do it. Not a cultural Christian church that's San Francisco-ized. Not a church where you can just like, let's lower the bar and just amalgamate with the values of the city. He wants to do the third thing, the third kind of person, and that's to build a remnant. The people who, regardless of what's happening in the culture, they don't come because they have to, they come because they want to, and they're drawn to the fire. So all this stuff I've been talking about, reliability, of building a temple that's actually building a place because he wants to come and he wants his spirit to dwell. And when Solomon built that temple and the spirit comes in, that's the moment that I believe this church is at. You've been pushing into the spirit. We're now talking about community, but that's because he wants to really do the business in this city. And it points throughout history. If you look at the history of renewal, throughout the history of the church, there are moments when cultures are under tremendous pressure, when the world globalized. This happened in the 18th century, when the, steam, steam uh, the steamer and into the 19th century when steam trains and, and telegraphs all of a sudden meant that the church could go on the, 
on the back of empire throughout the world and they hijack it from within. And we're back now at one of those moments of global pressure of disruption and the Holy Spirit always comes to disrupt the disruption. And so, at this moment, what if God wants to do what He's done at those moments and really do the stuff? Really transform lives. Turn this from just another cool church, and I'm not saying just that's all it is now, but turn this into a pulsating, magnetic home and dwelling place of His Spirit. So, this is my end. I, I, I spend time, I've spent a lot of time recently, had the privilege of hanging out with the staff from here. And God's had them on a journey. I don't know if they know I'm talking about them. But anyway, God's had them on a journey. But what you find is there's a point where God can only take a staff so far, and a staff and leaders need them people to follow. To actually say, yeah, I'm on board, and I am all in. So I'm actually going to ask the band to come forward now. And we're just going to step into a response time. Let's stand.